So I think that we should not be calling a moratorium on missions, but rather we should be changing how we do missions. Mm. And so how we should be doing missions is no longer evangelism. I'm not saying we shouldn't evangelize, but like I said, the local people actually can evangelize better. They have the numbers, they have the language skills, they have the knowledge of the culture. But what do they need? They need more depth. Because if their Christianity is a mile wide, but an inch deep, they actually need more training, more books, more discipleship, more seminaries being built there. But the trick is to do this without paternalism. Welcome to the Lausanne Movement Podcast, where we have a passion to accelerate global mission together. I am your host, Jason Watson, and over the next few weeks, we will be taking a look at significant shifts that impact global mission. In each episode, I will be talking to Dr. Matthew Nieman, Director of the Lausanne Movement's forthcoming State of the Great Commission report, for a brief overview of the shift at hand, drawing from research that has been done, noting key data points to be looking at, and we will hear from an expert on the topic. Today, we'll be exploring the shift of global Christianity. Christianity is a dynamic and living faith, which has experienced notable global shifts in the past 100 years, including the growth of Christianity in the global south, the rise of Pentecostalism, and the continued addition of denominations leading to the question, what is polycentric Christianity? Let's begin with some framing insights from Dr. Matthew Nieman. Dr. Matthew Newman, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Jason. Good to be here. I'm so excited for this new season in the podcast as we unpack the shifts that are happening globally that have been unpacked in the State of the Great Commission report. Today, we are speaking about the shifts that have been experienced in Christianity and the question of what polycentric Christianity looks like. And so to kick us off, Dr. Newman, throughout the years, You've had a really great opportunity to engage with Christians from across the world. And even in this process of, putting, of directing and di the State of the Great Commission report, you've interacted with a vast amount of people and a vast amount of data that is global. And I would love to hear from you in what ways has this unique intersection of quantitative and qualitative insights shaped your own way of connecting with God. Yeah, thank you, Jason. It's, it's really a true blessing that I've been able to speak with and talk with Christians from all around the world and get to know them such that I can call them friends. Right? These friends have really broadened my understanding of the church and how God is moving around the world. Yeah, Jason, I find it's very easy to have a narrow, short-range focus about a lot of things in our life, including the working of God in the world and in our context. So all too often when we look at our own context and think that this is the extent of God's movement, and I trust this is really a universal experience for a lot of us, uh, but it's one that's particularly powerful, I would argue, in my context, the global West. Right. Many scholars have really observed that the number of Christians and the impact of Christianity and culture is really waning in the West. So when you wake up day to day and you read the news and you see what's going on out there, uh, this can actually be discouraging, but without fail, after each meeting with a global friend, I sit down for a few minutes. I'm really in awe of God. God really is on the move globally, and he's really ever-present in our world. So it can be really encouraging to see, to, to, as you asked, these quants, this qualitative experience. Uh, it's, it's really encouraging to see the quantitative numbers documenting God's movement in the world. 
Uh, when you look at the rise of Christianity in Asia, the rise of Christianity in Africa on a graph, it's really exciting. Uh, but really, when you can speak with global friends, hear their stories, study the qualitative data, uh, these lines on a graph become people or neighborhoods or other contexts. Uh, and I can see God moving. And, and not just that God is moving, but how God is moving. And really, that makes me in awe of God. So my work with this report has placed me in an increasing wonder of who God is and how he's being made known throughout the world. Well, thank you for framing that. I think it's it's actually really beautiful as we we diving into numbers, we're speaking about global shifts, but we're not just talking about data, we're talking about people. And, and so thank you for framing that for us. Uh, I, I would like you to just unpack for us. We're speaking about the shifts in Christianity that are happening globally. What were the major themes that you explored as you unpack the State of the Great Commission report? Yeah, under the State of the Great Commission report, we've got these key questions that, that we'll be look, talking about in this podcast. And this first one is shifting Christianity or what we're asking, what is global polycentric Christianity? Under there, we're looking at major movements in the rise of Asia, the rise of Africa, major world, a majority world mission movements, and then the effect of that. So as the population shifts, and we'll talk about in this podcast, what does that mean for global missions? What really is polycentric missions? and all the other structures that follow. What is polycentric resource mobilization? What does it look like to have polycentric institutions and missions and churches? So this whole section begins to not only see the shifts in Christianity, but begin to explore the effects of that on our church and our missions. Great, so let's start by exploring some of the shifts that have happened over the past 100 years or so. Could you paint us a picture of what Christianity looked like uh, about a century ago and to, and to the point where we are right now? Yeah, this is really one of the more interesting parts of the report. If you zoom all the way out, the evolution of Christian growth over the last 150 years, 1900 to projected 2050, is actually a very static picture, unfortunately. From 1900 to today, and even projected to 2050, the global percentage of people who identify as Christians has remained relatively unchanged, pretty consistently with a few blurbs right around 34% of the globe. Now, you can imagine this somewhat wavy line, but basically it's a straight line on the graph. Now, with that said, the number does indicate that the growth of the church has generally kept up with population growth, but it really hasn't increased more than that. Wow, that's fascinating. If you reflect back on the early 1900s, what were the distinctive characteristics that um, defined global Christianity at the time? What did global Christianity look like? Yeah, in the 1900s, global Christianity was predominantly a religion of the global West, Europe and North America. At that time, a little under 70% of all global Christians were found in Europe. And another approximately 15% were located in North America. So that really means that less than 20% of all of global Christianity was found in Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the rest of the global South. Wow. And in contrast today, what does the global picture look like? Can you unpack that for our listeners? Yeah, so global Christianity today looks vastly different than it did in 1900. But just as we observed in 1900, over 80% of global Christianity was in Europe and North America and less than 20% in the global South. However, that's really almost completely flipped over the last 150 years. As of 2020, over 65% of global Christianity now lives in the global South and less than 35% live in the global North. Mm -hmm. So maybe a, a better way, you know, since we've been talking about this, not just numbers, it's people, maybe a better yeah. way to imagine this, Jason, is to think about a sample person that would represent Christianity each of those times. So in 1900, you could argue that a good representative of global Christianity would be a European male. 
Now in 2020, a good representative of global Christianity would be a Nigerian female. Wow. And with reference to the State of the Great Commission report, can you briefly unpack this concept of polycentric Christianity? Because you said that this is the question that is coming out um, of our current state of Christianity. And as we look forward to 2050, could you unpack what polycentric Christianity is and its potential expression by the year 2050? Yeah. So over the years, there's been a lot of taglines to describe this dynamic of global Christianity. And maybe a hundred years ago, Christianity was exemplified by the tagline from West to the rest. Christianity was located in the West and was being moved to the rest of the world. But now a common tagline, perhaps better exemplary of today's time is from everywhere to everywhere. Mm. Because Christianity has really dynamically shifted the last 150 years. There's not really one center of global Christianity, but there's several now. And we call this phenomena polycentric Christianity, multiple centers of Christianity. So in 2050, the trends I just described actually exaggerate even further with the global North just having over 20% of the church, the global South nearly having 80% of the global church. So in that case, Africa, Asia, Latin America, these are all now and will continue to be centers of Christianity in and of themselves. So we have multiple centers now, right? Christianity is polycentric, multiple centered in nature around the world. And that kind of shift has also happened within different traditions and denominations. You know, I think of some of the denominations that began in Europe are now global and they have global voices. And some of the, the shifts of power have also shifted into um, the majority world area. And part of your report speaks about unpack some of the data surrounding traditions and denominations. As we look toward the mid-21st century, which Christian traditions do you believe are on the brink of gaining significant traction and which are likely to recede? So if you look across global Christianity, historically there are several major traditions, including traditions like Catholics and Protestants and Orthodox and so on. The Catholic Church has the largest number of adherents, followed by Protestants and Orthodox, generally speaking. Well, since 1900, the Catholic Church really globally peaked around 1950, but has been steadily losing adherence since that time. The Protestant Church, holding less adherence, has been about the same percentage of global Christianity from 1900 to 2050. There was a large dip in the middle of it, but if you zoom out 1900 and 2050, it's about the same percentage of Protestants. Unfortunately, Orthodox have been in a steady decline since 1900. And these major traditions are in decline or remaining steady, but there are actually three newish movements in Christianity that have seen notable growth. The first is the rise of the independent church. In 1900, the independent church really had no adherence or was not statistically significant, but projected in 2050, the independent church will have more adherence than Orthodox church and only about two percentage points behind Protestants. So the other two major movements with notable growth are found what we call within traditions. So these exist within Protestant and Catholic and Orthodox, as well as their own uh, adherents. So this is notably evangelicalism and Pentecostalism. Both have seen significant growth since the 1970s, with Pentecostalism having the largest growth, now actually larger than Protestantism globally. It's, it's a major global phenomenon. With the whole shift into the majority world, there's also been shifts in structures of formation, and I would like to talk about that. How has the global church shifted in terms of ins its institutional structures of education, 
within Christianity? How have they adapted? How have they transformed? Or perhaps how have they failed to adapt and transform to the shifting demographics within the global Christianity? Yeah, as we've noted, there's been this big shift to global Christian populations, just so there's not one center of Christianity in the West, but multiple centers of global faith, or as we call it, polycentric Christianity. And as you can imagine, with these changes, Great Commission work has become a wonderful mosaic of people and cultures and approaches. But yet any change requires intentional action to allow for new voices and new ways and new structures. That there's very active current conversation. Uh, it's how do we find equally beautiful and adequate ways to collaborate, not compete, give new voices a chance to speak. Uh, and frankly, this is an ongoing journey for the church, global church for sure. And the outworking of increased polycentrism admittedly is very complicated. Existing leadership structures, financial structures, donor structures, organizational dynamics need to change to reflect the new face of the global church. But we've been operating in that mode for so long and entrenched in them, it's very difficult to begin to shift that at a large scale. So really, we recognize that these must be really significant structural changes and not just the surface level diversity appointment in leadership. Understanding polycentric Christianity in its real sense and, and shifting the structures doesn't just mean having a leadership team with people from multiple regions. But as you can imagine, this is a really challenging process. But I want to encourage us that the rewards are really great when the whole church can bring the whole gospel to the whole world. We must continue to work at this. That's so good. And when we speak about global shifts in Christianity, we are not only just speaking about the evangelical church, but we're speaking about the church in general. But I would like to shift our conversation just a little bit as we begin to draw this conversation to a close and begin to focus a bit in on the evangelical perspective. Could you delve into the particular shifts within the evangelical church globally and specifically dis distinct shifts within the regions and how evangelicalism is being expressed within the different regions? Yeah. So globally, evangelicalism is about 5% of the global population or about 15% of global Christianity. Again, the growth of evangelicalism around the world is, has mirrored the regional growth of the global church. So with the rise of Africa, the rise of Asia, the rise of Latin America, you see the rise of evangelicalism increasing the most there. And really, despite lesser percentage of growth over the last 150 years, the global West still is a major center of evangelicalism. In 2020, the United States held the largest number of evangelicals, and Belgium actually experienced the quickest, fastest growth of evangelicals. So it's a really global phenomenon, mirroring a lot of what's happening within the regions, but yet providing new breath in some of those places that aren't growing as fast. And with the current trajectory in mind, what questions should we as leaders within the evangelical church be thinking about and addressing to prepare for 2050, where we're going? You know, I believe there's always these universal questions as well as new questions we haven't faced. So certainly evangelical church must always ask and know how in their context they can make Christ known and the truth of the Bible desired. This is always a question that will be with us. But beyond these timeless questions, there are several current questions that will be shaping our world in the Great Commission between now and 2050 for sure. We'll be covering a lot of these questions during this podcast in detail as we continue. But for now, let me just mention a few. First, we need to recognize that for the majority of the world, we now live in a digital world. With this comes a host of questions from what it means to live a digital life and how the church can effectively minister in a digital age. Lots of interesting, complex, and important questions to ask there. And secondly, I believe 
actually the defining question of our age that the church must attend to is the question of what does it mean to be human? From technology to identity questions, we're questioning our humanness all over the world and it's at the forefront of global conversation. I mean, there are a lot, of, lot more questions, certainly we need to ask. These are a few key ones that we have to have front and center. Wow, this is so rich, Matt, and I really appreciate you taking time to unpack some of this data for us. But as we draw this conversation to a close, what key takeaways or thoughts would you like to leave us with as the church and as the audience listening regarding the state of the future of the global church? After taking a deep dive into the rise and fall of regional Christianity, it is always important to remember that our God is eternal and has foretold his ultimate victory. So we have to continue to have hope and rejoice in that. We can also rejoice with our brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia and Latin America as we witness a significant rise of the church in those locations. No matter the condition of our home regions, we have to praise the Lord for the movement in the world. I have no doubt that God is on the move in the world, and to that we can say amen. To explore the shifts in global Christianity a little bit deeper, we are now joined by Dr. Alan Yeh, Professor of Intercultural Studies and Missiology at Biola University and author of numerous books, including Polycentric Missiology, 21st Century Mission, From Everyone to Everywhere. Let's jump into our interview with Dr. Alan Yeh. Dr. Alan Yeh, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here, Jason. So today on the podcast, we're exploring some of the global shifts in Christianity that have been highlighted in the State of the Great Commission Report. And we're asking the question, what is polycentric Christianity? And it just so happens that you wrote the go-to book on the topic entitled Polycentric Missiology, 21st Century Mission from Everyone to Everywhere. And so as a matter of introduction to the topic of polycentric Christianity, I would love to ask you to share with our listeners how you define polycentric Christianity and what sparked your passion or your interest to sparked it enough to write a whole book on the subject. Could you share that with us before we dive in? Of course. Well, the hint is in the subtitle of my book, 21st Century Mission from Everyone to Everywhere. But that's in contrast to 20th Century Mission or even before, which was from the West to the rest. Mm. And so that was unidirectional mission because we saw only Western missionaries going to the rest of the world. And now polycentric, which means many centers. So this is the beautiful thing about Christianity. It is the only religion in the world which has no center. Mm. And, you know, we don't have a central city like Mecca or Varanasi or Salt Lake City or, you know, whatever for other religions. Uh, we don't have a, an ethnic majority. So there is no one ethnic group associated with Christianity. It's really in every continent and every culture and every language. And so... That's beautiful. Mm. And I sort of feel like this is one of the best apologetics for uh, Christianity being the only true religion in the world, because uh, really it's the only religion that has a global God. All other religions have tribal gods and ethnic specific and geographic spe specific gods. So now we're seeing mission going from everyone to everywhere. We're seeing, you know, people from Africa going to Europe. We're seeing people from South America going to the Middle East. Uh, we're seeing, you know, back to Jerusalem movement from China, going back to Israel. So it's a very exciting time to be alive in terms of Christian mission. What sparked your passion for writing the book on the subject? 
What's interesting is that in the year 2016, when my book was published, I don't think the words polycentric mission were really that big of a deal. Today, it's become sort of a go-to catchphrase for so many mission movements like the World Evangelical Alliance and the Lausanne movement, of course. One of my heroes, academic heroes, is Professor Andrew Walls, who just passed away a few years ago. But he was at the University of Edinburgh, and he's sort of the father of the study of the field of world Christianity. So back in 1996, he wrote a book called uh, The Missionary Movement in Christian History, where he highlighted this. And at the time, no one else was aware this kind of shift was happening, and he identified this. And uh, Christianity Today in 2008 called him the most important person you don't know. And because he was the one who identified this. And I think correspondingly, world Christianity is the most important study you don't know, right? But I started noticing these trends. And then I did my doctorate on a Latin American theologian, Orlando Costas, who also was a, an identifier of this trend. And so I think I just sort of gave it this name, uh, Polycentric Mission. I, I don't know that I coined it, but I, I didn't get it from anywhere else. I think maybe numerous people coined it at the same time. Uh, but it became really this uh, wonderful catchphrase for our generation. Similar to in 1910, the Edinburgh World Missionary Conference had the catchphrase, the evangelization of the world in this generation. And so I feel like today the catchphrase is sort of a mission from everyone to everywhere or polycentric mm. mission. That's so good. And in your preparation for this book, you attended five global gatherings that focused in on global missions in Tokyo and Edinburgh and Cape Town in Boston and in San Jose. And over a decade has passed since these events. I would love for you to just share with our listeners, as you look back, what are some key memories that stand out to you? And what do you believe has had a lasting impact since these gatherings were held? Fantastic question. So I had mentioned the Edinburgh World Missionary Conference of 1910, which was one of the most famous missions conferences in history. And all of these five gatherings that you just mentioned were aiming to celebrate the centenary of Edinburgh 1910. And, but what I found interesting is that there wasn't one that celebrated the centenary because back in 1910, mission was from the West to the rest. And so the UK was sort of the center of Christianity and missions of the time. And so it made sense to have it in Edinburgh. But today, you know, in 2010, you had these gatherings literally from five different continents. and. So we are seeing that mission really is not just a product of the West. And you know, some of the biggest memories that I remember are ones that actually move the heart, not so much the head. Mm. All right. So if you were, if anybody was present at Tokyo 2010, I think one of the things they would have remembered is the reconciliation between Japanese and Koreans. I mean, this is something that is not necessarily on the radar of Westerners because, you know, if we, we tend to focus on our own issues. But back in Asia, because of the legacy of World War II, Japanese and Koreans, even to this day, don't get along. Mm. And to see these Christians embracing each other, asking for forgiveness and seeking reconciliation. Something similar actually happened in Cape Town 2010 as well. It was the Brazilians who saw reconciliation with, with Africans because of the legacy of slavery So in the New World. And so that was something which was not even on the platform that mm -hmm. was sort of, you know, in a side conversation, but it became a really big thing. So, and then of course in Cape Town, I think probably if anyone would remember the most famous uh, and most impactful speech came from this 
like a high school North Korean girl who gave her testimony. <laughs> she got a standing ovation. Uh, she actually ended up being a student at Biola University. She was one of my students. Wow. Her name is Sarah. Exactly. That's so cool. And, and but just to show that, I think this is an indication of where mission is today, that it's not necessarily done by Westerners. It's not necessarily done by white people or males mm-hmm. or, you know, people who are in power. But sometimes it's done from, you know, a high school North Korean girl or, you know, the Brazilian seeking reconciliation mm-hmm. with Africans. And but I think what was beautiful about these five conferences is that they had synergy with each other. So you could see how they tried to dialogue with each other. They tried to uh, learn from each other's theology. For example, at the San Jose Costa Rica conference, Clade uh, Five, they actually used the Cape Town commitment, but in Spanish. So that was one of the things that they, shows a dialogue between them or the uh, 2010 Boston conference actually ha- used the same opening and closing speaker as the Edinburgh 19 sorry 2010 conference, mm. which was they started with Dana Robert and ended with the the Bishop of York Johnson Tamu. So I mean, so you had women and Global South people uh, framing the conference, and so I felt like they were very thoughtful. And then, but it was not just the official programming; it was also the off the books things that really made it special. Yeah, I'm sure that you were able to meet with people from all over the world as you went through those gatherings. I would ask you a tongue-in-cheek question, which is which, which of those gatherings was your favorite? But because we're on the Lausanne Movement podcast, I'm just going to assume that your favorite was the Cape Town 2010 Lausanne gathering. So, so I'd love for us just to dive deeper into this concept of polycentric Christianity. Why do you believe polycentric Christianity is a crucial framework for the modern church to engage with? Yeah, so this is going to be a sort of funny answer to this. Although it is a modern framework, it actually is an ancient framework. That's so so it is not only something which is new, but it is something which is old. In that sense, it's not so much a revolution. I mean, it is a revolution in the sense that we're seeing Christianity go to the uttermost ends of the earth in places that have never had Christianity before. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also a reformation. It's a back to the first century movement because... You know, I often point out that Christianity is was created and poised to be polycentric. I mean, if you think about Israel as the promised land, why did God choose that to be the promised land? One of the reasons, I think, is that it is the crossroads of three different continents. It's where Asia, Africa, and Europe all meet. And so the gospel was actually able to launch from Israel in three different directions, which it did in the first century. We know that gospel went to Ethiopia. You mm-hmm. see this in Acts chapter 6 with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And so Ethiopia has claimed Christianity since the first century, as has India. The Apostle Thomas purportedly went there and brought the gospel over there. And of course, Asia Minor, which is where uh, Paul did his missionary journeys. And then, of course, Paul also went to Greece. So uh, Europe has had the gospel since the first century. And so you're seeing it in all three directions. But you also see this in scripture itself, you know, at least with the synoptic gospels. I mean, people often ask, why are there multiple gospels? And my answer is, it's because of culture. And so you're seeing a Jewish gospel in Matthew, a Roman gospel in Mark, and a Greek gospel in Luke. And I think the Bible itself shows that we need to be seeing Jesus through multiple cultural lenses. And this is not relativism, because 
I think each of them just highlights different aspects of Jesus, and all of them are true. They're not contradicting each other, but they're like pieces of the pie. You put the whole pie together, right? All the slices together, and you get the fuller picture of God. So that, that's what I think is going on. And then even in the ancient church, you had the five ancient patriarchates, we call them, uh, where the five bishops presided in ancient Christianity. So, and they were Rome, which is in Europe, and then Constantinople in Eurasia. You had two in Asia, Antioch and Jerusalem, and he had one in Africa, which was Alexandria. And so the model for the ancient church was actually polycentric as well from three different continents. And so this is nothing new, actually. This is something very old, and we're just returning back to what it should be and what it originally was. Thank you for sharing the historical and even the biblical context. I think it's so helpful to frame that in light of our modern reality. I would like us to move from the past to the future just for a bit. Uh, the State of the Great Commission report is encouraging us to answer the question, what is polycentric Christianity look like um, as we move from where we are now into the future, specifically 2050? Could you unpack for us what polycentric mission looks like in practical terms? Absolutely. Missiologist Philip Jenkins wrote a book called The Next Christendom, where he made a very famous phrase. He said that the average Christian today is no longer you know, a white, older male from the West who is wealthy. So he says today, I'm paraphrasing him, that the average Christian is female, they're young, they're black or brown, they're from the global South, they're poor, and they're uneducated. I would even add to this that they are probably Pentecostal and uh, they may not speak English. Oh, also post-denominational, you know, or independent from an independent church. So I think all of these things show that the Christianity has shifted in its demographics, but polycentric mission is an outflowing of this, these demographic shifts. So for example, the largest church in London today or in the UK is actually a Nigerian church. So it's Kingsway International in London. So you're seeing all these Africans move to Europe and they are actually becoming the majority of the Christians in a place like Europe, which is really declining in Christianity. And so this is one aspect or an example of polycentric mission. You know, Korea is famous for these huge megachurches. I think they have something like four of the 10 biggest megachurches in the world. And they are missions movers. And so you're seeing Koreans go all over the world and, mm. you know, enacting the, these missions. And then missions, I think, uh, polycentric missions is not simply international. I think we need to understand it in terms of crossing cultures. So, for example, India is one of the greatest senders of polycentric missions, but it, they often do it in-country, right? Because India is known as a subcontinent. Mm. And so within one country, you have so many different ethnic groups and languages that are not even etymologically related. And people are, sometimes they don't have the passports to be able to go international, but they can certainly cross cultures even within their own country. And so you're seeing a lot of these cross-cultural missionaries in places like India happen as well. And I think, especially within multi-ethnic countries, uh, like the United States uh, and Brazil, and you're able to do the reach the other side of the world just by crossing the street. That's right. And so polycentric mission can be, can literally be flying to, across the ocean, but it can also be right here. 
And I think that the reality is the global cities are becoming more multi-ethnic in all forms and ways. You know, that a few years ago, I stopped and I, I was at church and I was ministering and I was looking across the room and I saw 18 different ethnicities just in the small room that I was in. Um, and I think that's becoming typical. I love that you pointed out that you suggested that it's likely that a com like a normal Christian is likely to be Pentecostal and speak another language other than English. Um, and as I looked at the state of the Great Commission reports, it says that that the most the biggest language group in terms of Christianity is Spanish, which was a surprise to me as an English speaker, but in a good way. And I, the other thing that stood out to me was that Pentecostalism is on the increase. So by 2050, it's going to be the second largest de denomination besides Catholicism. I'd be interested to hear from you. Which stats or trends do you find most interesting, most alarming or encouraging from the State of the Great Commission reports shifts on global Christianity? Let me talk about Pentecostalism for a second, because mm -hmm. I think this is very interesting and moving. So Pentecostalism, in terms of modern Pentecostalism, I'm not talking about the Acts chapter 2 version, but Modern Pentecostalism is often seen to have started from 1906 Azusa Street in Los Angeles, okay? But actually, if you look at the history of uh, Pentecostalism, uh, th there was a Swiss theologian named Walter Hollenweger, and he actually came up with something called the polycentric theory of Pentecost. And he said that if you look in around the same time, early 20th century, there was a mini Pentecost in Wales in 1903 to 4, and in, also in India, 1904 to 5, and in Chile in 1906 to 7, and in Korea in 1907. So the 1906 Azusa Street Revival was not the only one. And so I think this is really fascinating that polycentrism also occurred with this modern Pentecostalism. And we're seeing that all around the world today. And the effects of this is a greater pneumatology. This, that means theology of the Holy Spirit. And so you know, I think that evangelicals tend to be so focused on Christology, which nothing wrong with that. That's great. Second person of the Trinity. But I also feel like we sometimes miss the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who's uh, living and active in us today. Mm -hmm. And Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to be with you. And I think that's uh, really important for us to be cognizant of that fact. So that is the fastest growing demographic of Christianity around the world. So I think that if we want to be on board with the trends of our brothers and sisters around the world, that we need to notice that trend. I think the alarming thing is the clash of Christianity and Islam, right? I mean, obviously, every single religion is something to be concerned about. But Islam in particular is the second biggest religion on earth after Christianity. So I think it's encouraging that Christianity is still the biggest. But you know, the fact that Islam is actually faster growing. And we often, you know, talk about the center of gravity of Christianity being in sub-Saharan Africa, but one of the centers of gravity of Islam is actually in Northern Africa. Mm -hmm. So the continent of Africa becomes this tension point. And we're seeing the, the two religions sometimes coexist peacefully, but sometimes have violent clashes. And I often think that Africa becomes the testing ground for some of these these issues. And then in particular, Nigeria. So mm -hmm. Nigeria is the most populous country in Africa. And there's a saying that's as goes Nigeria, so goes the whole continent of Africa. So that's actually a place that we want to keep our eyes on. But also the fact that the Christianity that's coming out of Africa is also really influencing a lot of global Christians as well. We're seeing this with 
the bishops in the United Methodist Church and also in the Church of England, uh, which have really influenced and actually even outvoted some of the Western Christians that in sometimes very positive ways um, in moral issues and such. So uh, even in my own church in Southern California, this is a big megachurch, we're using a curriculum called Rooted, which actually comes out of Kenya. And so, and this is a beautiful example of polycentric mm. uh, theologizing, which Africans are teaching us Westerners how to do a better Bible study, you know, because often I feel like they are more, their African culture is, and a lot of majority world cultures, majority world, we mean Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the, those continents. A lot of the majority world theologizing is actually more similar to first century theologizing and than us in the West are because they, they're not as predisposed to modernism or individualism or, you know, a lot of these accretions that have come upon Western Christianity, a platonic dualism, etc. But instead, they are in many ways culturally similar. They don't have, they don't exclude this middle level of the spirit world and angels and demons and they understand agrarian metaphors better and they understand the concept of sacrifice better mm -hmm. and they often are coming from theology from a place of poverty and from you know marginalization which is actually where Jesus came from himself <laughs> so all of these things are links these stats are not just stats they actually have real world mm -hmm. on the ground implications that's so good i really appreciate you speaking about how they're playing out on the ground um, given these trends how, how have you seen mission evolving over the past 50 years and where do you see us moving as we go into the future? So I remember picking up a copy of the Africa Bible Commentary. It's this huge one-volume commentary on the entire Bible written by 70 Black African scholars. And so I thought, this is amazing. And in the introduction, they actually made a very interesting observation. They said that Christianity in Africa is a mile wide but an inch deep. And I remember myself going to Kenya on a missions trip and I saw this. You know, at first I got over there and I noticed that they seem to have more Christians than we do here in the West in terms of percentage. And I mean, every storefront and every bus had like written Holy Spirit or Jesus is Lord on it. So I thought, this is, this is encouraging. This is great. But then I thought, why am I even here? You know, should we call a moratorium on missions? It's so expensive to send mission Western missionaries everywhere and you know, the local people, not only do they have more Christians than us, but they also know the culture and the language better than us. So why are we even here? What's the point? Isn't it better just to leave them alone and allow them to do all their own evangelism? And I do think that they should be doing their own evangelism for sure. I mean, there's something called the three self church, which was, I know a lot of people that mistakenly think this is only referring to the Chinese church, the communist church the government church, and that is called the Three Self Patriotic Movement. But they got their ideas from uh, two 18th century missiologists, uh, one from America, Rufus Anderson, and one from England, Henry Venn, who said that wherever Western missionaries go, and this was a very progressive idea at the time, they said that they should essentially be working themselves out of a job. Mm -hmm. In other words, get the locals to become self-propagating, self-governing, and self-sustaining. So they need to do their own evangelism, that's self-propagating. They need to do be their own pastors, not have Westerners be the pastors. So that is um, self-governing. And they need to not just be receiving Western funds to prop themselves up all the time. They need to be self-sustaining. Uh, and then a fourth self has actually recently been uh, talked about, which is self-theologizing. 
they need to write their own theology. So now we have these four selves, and this actually leads to how mission has evolved. So I think that we should not be calling a moratorium on missions, but rather we should be changing how we do missions. Mm. And so how we should be doing missions is no longer evangelism. I'm not saying we shouldn't evangelize, but like I said, the local people actually can evangelize better. They have the numbers, they have the language skills, they have the knowledge of the culture. But what do they need? They need more depth. Because if their Christianity is a mile wide, but an inch deep, they actually need more training, more books, more discipleship, more seminaries being built there. But the trick is to do this without paternalism. I think that sometimes uh, we can go over there and still just give them our theology, right? So they do need to be built up and they need partnership, right? But they need to do that without us telling them what to do. And so I think if we can encourage them towards the four selves, this will be a wonderful thing. But it doesn't mean we should completely work ourselves out of a job in the sense that uh, we should remove ourselves altogether. I think uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says that there's no part of the body that should say, I don't need you to another part of the body. The diversity is, should be in unity. So this is a kind of ecumenical spirit that we should all have. So even though I think it is encouraging to see the growth of the global church in the majority world, but it doesn't mean that they don't need us anymore, but it also means that we need them. And so let's learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And how can we learn from each other? How can the majority world still learn? And how can the rest of the world learn from the majority world? Yeah, so I think theological education is a big piece of the puzzle. So like I said, this is part of what we should be doing with mission. It, one of the shifts that we should be seeing. And honestly, this coheres with the Great Commission. If you look at the Great Commission, and actually there's five Great Commissions. <laughs> there's one in each of the four Gospels and one in the Book of Acts. So even the Great Commission is polycentric. But with the Matthean version of the Great Commission, which is the most famous one, Matthew 28, if you look, the chief verb there is not evangelize. In fact, the word evangelize doesn't even appear there. Now, that might be surmised from teaching and baptizing, but the, the chief verb there is actually to make disciples, mm -hmm. to go and make disciples of all nations. And discipleship is about growth, and it is about continuing to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. So. One of the analogies I give is that I wrote this in one of my books that uh, the difference between evangelism and discipleship is kind of like the difference between a wedding and a marriage. So evangelism is more like a wedding because it is the initiatory act that kicks off the relationship. But discipleship is more like the marriage because it is the day-to-day -day lived out experience with the other in which you have to die to yourself daily. Now, which one is more important? The wedding or the marriage. I think mm, the marriage. 100%. Unfortunately, at least here in the West, people spend far too much money on, you know, the, the wedding. And I kind of wish that people would put a little bit of that money towards marriage counseling. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> like, the quality of living, you know, living with the other in a good way for the rest of your life That's is so the good. most important thing. Yeah. And we need to actually see that in, in missions today. Mm. And we need to get people to be more discipled. We need to get them to grow deeper with Jesus. And we need to get them to commit to Jesus for the rest of their life. It doesn't no good to go around the world and get people to say the sinner's mm. prayer. And you go back a year later and they're no longer Christians, right? So that that's not the point of missions. Missions should be deeper than that. Mm. And uh, hopefully we can see that trend extending into the future with discipleship. Yeah. 
those are such crucial points. And I would like us to explore how we can put those ideas into action, especially in mission and leadership. Uh, could you maybe kick us off by highlighting a case study or a real world example where you've seen polycentric missions having a sin significant impact on you know, the life of a believer or in the discipleship process? I can actually give you two examples of polycentric mission done well in terms of real life examples. And one of them I will take from scripture and one of them I will take from history. In scripture, you see Acts chapter six. This is where the 12 apostles choose the seven deacons. They choose them from among the 72 followers of Jesus. Remember, Jesus had the 12 and the 72. So the 12 felt overwhelmed with their responsibilities as the church was growing bigger. And so they decided to get seven deacons to help them with the responsibilities. And so now I know a lot of people focus on the division of labor. The 12 focus on ministry of the word, for example, prayer and preaching and evangelism, whereas the seven focus on ministries of material things like feeding the poor and collecting the money and uh, social justice issues. But uh, often a thing that is overlooked, which is the fact that the seven actually were chosen from among the Grecian Jews, whereas the 12 apostles were from the Hebraic Jews. Now, this is actually a case study in multi-ethnic leadership. Uh, one of the reasons that the seven deacons had to be chosen was from the Grecian Jews is because the Grecian Jews were being overlooked in the distribution of the food. And so the 12 apostles realized something. They said, wow, we actually need to have multi-ethnic leadership in order for us to minister to a multi-ethnic constituency. Mm -hmm. And so they said, if we, quote unquote, hire or <laughs> employ, you know, these people from different ethnic groups, that they will have the insight to be able to minister to people from different ethnic groups. So this is why I actually think that a mission leadership today should be polycentric. One of my good friends, Joe Hanley, who is the president of the mission organization A3, actually wrote a book, which you should check out, which is called Polycentric Mission Leadership. And so this is a model for the church today. And his book is a great resource for that. And I see in Lausanne, we actually have that kind of a polycentric leadership as well, which is very heartening. Uh, the lesson I will draw from history is from the Edinburgh 1910 conference. And that is B.S. Azariah, who was from India. He was the Bishop of Dornicall. And now in Edinburgh 1910, as I said, is mainly, mainly white Westerners who were there. But they had 17 Asians. They had no Africans and no Latin Americans, but they had 17 Asians who were there. And Azariah was one of them. And he gave probably the most powerful and the most beautiful uh, speech that was memorable from the conference. And he said to all the Westerners who were at this conference, you know, you have done so much for the rest of the world. You have sacrificed, you have given your money, you have given your bodies to be burned. He, and he said, but now give us love. Wow. We ask for love. Give us friends. Wow. Okay. Mm. So he wanted equal partnership, right? And so this is something that I feel like we often miss because we focus so much on, you know, the Greek word agape, which, I mean, that's a wonderful word. It is charity. Mm -hmm. It is the idea of unconditional, you know, you give to the other without expecting anything in return. Mm -hmm. But Azariah pointed out something which, and C.S. Lewis also highlighted this in his book, The Four Loves. He said of the four Greek words love, and then you have philia, which is friendship, and you have storge, which is more like parental love, and you have eros, which is romantic love. He said the most important one is actually philia. Mm. Now, I think that sometimes we don't think about that, 
but that's reciprocity. That's friendship, mm. right? We get words like the city of Philadelphia from this, and but the city of brotherly love. But the reciprocity, you might say, well, that doesn't sound as Christian expecting something in return. But actually, Jesus did that with us. He, he actually said, I no longer call you servants. Instead mm-hmm. of you know, one way, he says, I call you friends. Mm-hmm. It goes both ways. And he says, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Mm-hmm. Okay? So uh, friendship, I think, is something that we need uh, polycentrically around the world. And Azariah talked about this in 1910. And we're seeing this today. You know, I was part of this Lausanne Generations uh, conversation, which we had at Biola University a few months ago. And there's friendship that cuts across not just nationality and ethnicity and gender, but even age, right? So the boomers and the Gen X and the millennials and the Gen Z are all working together. Uh, And I think this kind of partnership is what we really need. We need to see more philia in this world. And I think that will be a powerful thing moving into the future. Wow, Adam, thank you for that. That's such practical advice. I had a set of questions for you regarding um, advice you'd give to, to various leaders within various organizations, but I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, but I would like to focus in on just one group of people that, that I would love to hear your encouragement to. You are a professor at Biola University. You have a ton of young believers, passionate Christians coming through your doors on a daily basis. I would love to ask you, as you I would like to ask you to imagine you're sitting across a table from a young leader. What advice would you give them concerning polycentric Christianity, polycentric mission? Is there a piece of advice that you could leave with them that you think would set them up for a great next couple of decades of Christian mission and leadership? You know, I keep on referring back to the Edinburgh 1910 World Missionary Conference and uh, by the way, I, just a little bit of history behind that. Uh, William Carey, the father of modern missions, in 1810, envisioned a polycentric global missions conference in Cape Town, South Africa. And he, even though he was so forward-thinking, all of his compatriots actually shot down his idea, so it never happened. So Edinburgh 1910 was actually a 100-year realization of his dream. And actually, Cape Town 2010 was actually a 200-year realization of his dream. So, and they actually did it in Cape Town, which was wonderful. But in Edinburgh 1910, the leader of this group was of the conference, the organizer was John R. Mott, an American. And he had this watchword, the evangelization of the world in this generation, as I had mentioned. Mm. And he uh, focused on students, university students and young people. And he enlisted the YMCA, the Young Men Christians Association, and also the SVM, the Student Volunteer Movement. And... Um, he encouraged them towards missions. And we see this today expressed in things like the Urbana Missions Conference, right? Sponsored by InterVarsity, a triennial missions conference for young people. The thing about college students is they are so well-equipped to be missionaries. Mm-hmm. I, as I look at Gen Z, and I know that there's a lot of anxiety and sometimes depression and there's mental health crises. And, but I also think they have so much to offer and there's so much potential there. And, you know, young people are in the prime of their health, right? So they can weather any sort of physical storm. They often don't have family ties or commitments. So they're often single and don't have children. So they can be flexible and up and move anywhere. They're very intelligent, college educated. So they're some of the brightest people out there. And I think that, and then they have zeal. I I think that the passion and the zeal, which, you know, sometimes older leaders are, don't have as much of. And so when I, you combine all of these things, 
I just think that young people are poised to really take the world by storm in terms of Christian mission. You know, Paul says to Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you are young, right? But set an example for everybody. And I feel like the young people today can do that. Mm. And I don't think that they need to feel inferior. One of the things I love about the Lausanne movement is that they recruit younger people. They Every 10 years, they have a younger leaders gathering. And in fact, we're changing our name from younger leaders to more generations because it is about collaboration. And I think that these collaborative efforts should be something that allow the younger generation to have a voice. Mm. But let me, I also want to say to the younger generation, it doesn't mean that you can just rest on your laurels. It does mean that you still need to grow and be educated and be trained. I mean, even Jesus, who was God, you know, had to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I think that younger people need to do that as well. Mm. And, you know, sometimes I see some younger believers, for example, I teach at Biola and they'll say, you know, Dr. Yeah, here I am uh, at Biola, four years of being trained, but then uh, there's all these people dying on the mission field. I just want to, you know, go out there and I'm going to drop out of college and go. And I say, no, don't do that. Uh, I say, first of all, Jesus himself, he didn't start his public ministry till he was 30 years old. So what was he doing before then? Mm -hmm. He was training in the secular world as a carpenter, and then he was being trained in the religious world as a rabbi. And then he brought both of those together. He integrated them and was able to do his three years of public ministry from age 30 to 33. So, you know, don't denigrate uh, the training and the maturity and the growth. And people say, well, what about the 12 disciples? They were uneducated fishermen. And I say, no, but they were actually trained for three years under the University of Jesus before they went out. They were disciples and then they became apostles. Disciples were students and then apostles are missionaries. So. They had to actually be have three years of training under Jesus before they went out. And then also Paul himself, who is the most educated, you know, he was a rabbi trained under Gamaliel, who was the greatest Jewish teacher of his time. Paul, God used him, an educated, trained person to write like half the New Testament. So, you know, so don't underestimate the value of preparation and education. That's what I would say to younger people. Wow, this has been such an enlightening conversation, Dr. Ellen. Yeah, I truly appreciate the time that you've given us. For those who have been inspired by today's conversation, where can they go and learn more about you or about your work or about polycentric Christianity? Where can we point people? I have several books. And of course, Polycentric Missiology is uh, probably the go-to one. But also I have another book called Majority World Theologies co-edited with uh, Dr. Tiet Tianu, who is from West Africa, and he is the former dean of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And we co-edited this book, which has uh, chapters of majority world theologizing. So you'll find theology from Latin America, from Aboriginal, you know, people from Alaska, from Palestine, from Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. And so I think that might be a really good resource for people just to see an example of uh, what self-theologizing looks like on the ground. That's great. Do you have any social medias or web pages? Yeah, you can. I don't have a web page, but you can follow me on Twitter at Alan Elie. So that's at A-L-L-E-N-L-Y-E-H. And that's probably the best way to get a hold of uh, some of my thoughts and resources. Alan, thank you for your time. Your insights into polycentric Christianity and global missions have really been thought-provoking. But not only just thought-provoking, but actionable as well, which is so appreciated. I'm sure that our listeners have a lot to ponder on and hopefully 
lot to apply in their own context. Thank you for your time. We truly appreciate you. You've added value to us today. Thank you so much, Jason. I was so happy to be on this podcast. Cheers. Well, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Lausanne Movement Podcast. If you liked today's episode, won't you take a moment to give us a rating and review and give us a shout out on social media. Next week, we will continue our exploration of shifts impacting global mission. Specifically, we'll be talking about the significant shifts we have experienced in the realm of technology. Until next week, cheers. Cheers.